it has stood the test of time. God's book, the Bible, still relevant in today's complex world. It is written, sharing messages of hope around the world. My dear friends, have you built a foundation that will stand the test of time? Now, I'm not talking about your home's foundation. I'm sure that your home was built on a strong foundation, but I'm talking about your spiritual life. Have you built on a foundation that will withstand the trials of everyday life, that will withstand the turmoil of the earth upon which we are living? You know, for the past several weeks, that's what we've been talking about, building strong foundations. And the foundation specifically we have spoken of time and time again is the foundation of the sanctuary, its centrality to the framework of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the individual who's been with me for the entire journey helping us to understand is Pastor Carl Satalabasides. Pastor Carl, I want to welcome you back to It Is Written Canada. It's good to be back again, Chris. You know, Pastor Carl, uh, you have spent 18 years in ministry as a pastor. Now you minister in the classroom. You uh, have taught at the collegiate level. You are about to put the final, the final periods, final crossing of the T's on a PhD dissertation. So we'll be able to call you Dr. T very soon. Uh, we're looking forward to that. Uh, and Pastor Carl, you in your PhD studies have been studying a lot about the presence of God, mm -hmm. which has led you to spend a lot of time studying and really digging into the sanctuary. Now, over the course of the last several weeks, we have built a very clear framework. There is a real sanctuary in heaven. That real sanctuary in heaven is where God is and where God is calling us to turn toward, not out of some uh, blind faith obedience, but rather to turn there because God desires to have a personal relationship with us. And the sanctuary is really all about that bridge or that integration of heaven and earth. And we've looked at that. If you have missed any of the programs, friend, I want you to go to www.youtube.com forward slash IIW Canada. There you can find the archives of these programs and you can catch up and be current with this program today. But Pastor Carl, where we left off is I had asked you the question, what happens if we reject the heavenly sanctuary? Can we still be faithful to the scriptures? Which I know this sounds like a really obvious question, but there are a lot of people out there that reject the reality of the sanctuary and claim to be faithful to the scriptures. Is that possible? We're going to turn to a story in 1 Kings chapter 12 that I think will really settle the issue. And uh, as we look into that story, you're going to see that it's going to be difficult to impossible in order to do that. So why don't we take some time and look at 1 Kings chapter 12 in order to try to answer this question. And so your question really is, yes, can we still hold to, to the authority of the Bible if we reject the sanctuary? So turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 12, and we're going to begin at verse 25. Just a little bit of a context here. 
Solomon, King Solomon is now dead, and because of his sins, the kingdom has been divided into two. You have the, uh, you have the southern uh, kingdom, which is basically Judah, uh, run by his son Rehoboam, and then ten tribes had been given to Jeroboam. And so we pick it up in verse 25, and I'll go ahead and maybe read verses 25 to the end of the chapter to verse 33, and then we're kind of going to expound on these as we go, as we seek to answer this question. Now, Pastor Carl, just so people are very, very clear where we're at in the whole history of Israel, King David had a son, Solomon. King David has died. His son, Solomon, who we've talked about a number of times, actually built the the temple there in Jerusalem. Uh, King Solomon goes through a very lengthy experience. Uh, He returns to God before he dies. But at this point, the kingdom has kind of been left in a a bit of apostasy, so to speak. He has a son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam does not follow the counsel of the elders. And so Israel splits in two, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah, which is... Rehoboam is now king over, and then the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and they are, uh, their headquarters, their capital is in Samaria, and that is uh, being governed, a king there, and that king is Jeroboam, just to be really clear. And now we pick up the story in 1 Kings 11, I'm sorry, 1 Kings 12, and where are we going? 25. 25. Okay, let's start right there. Then Jeroboam built Shechem and Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. And he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. And so the question is, what really is the sin of Jeroboam? And what does it have to do with the question that uh, we're seeking to answer here? And the question is, can I just reject the sanctuary and at the same time adhere to the authority of God's word? Or maybe we can ask it in reverse. Can I adhere to the authority of God's word and reject, and reject the sanctuary? Well, in uh, verse 28, um, even before that, in verse 27, He's trying to find a way in order to gain the loyalties of the people to himself. Right. He's he's worried. Yeah. He's worried. And 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 just so everyone's clear as they're reading, you know, you have there in verse 27, offerings and sacrifices made at the house of the Lord. That's referring to the temple. That's referring to the sanctuary. Correct. So he's greatly concerned. Yeah. 
because these tribes, the northern peoples of Israel, three times a year, three times a year at the feasts are going to return to the sanctuary, return to the temple. And he's quite worried that when they go there, they're going to turn their back on him and he's going to be left kind of holding, you know, holding like what am I doing here? an empty kingdom. What is he doing there? So he's looking for a way of how do I, how do I win the people? How do I keep the people to myself? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then what does he, what does he do? Yeah. So we pick it up uh, in verse. So he's, the Bible is, is, is pulling the curtain aside and helping us to understand his thought processes. Okay. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people shall be turned again into Rehoboam, even to their Lord, uh, King of Judah. And then he plays the old, uh, the old card. This is for security reasons. We need to preserve ourselves. Uh, then they're going to come and kill me. So, and there was like an imminent threat that had to be turned around. Uh, so there was some kind of threat that was going on. And just like some politicians will say, never let a good crisis go to waste. He thought, huh, this is a way, there is an imminent crisis, so I'm going to use this as a pretext in order to gain the loyalties of the people to myself. And so here it is in verse 28. What is the sin of Jeroboam ultimately? It says, whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and I want to stop right there. It says that he took counsel, and the result of that counsel was making two calves of gold. Now, very simply, where did he not get his counsel from? Very clearly, he's not getting his counsel from Scripture because, first of all, we see a calf of gold coming up at an earlier time in the history of Israel, and I think you're probably going to turn there and we're going to talk about that. But secondly, the Ten Commandments make it very clear that we, we don't need to make images. We don't need to make an image, and the sanctuary which we've been studying has been clear that we don't need images to worship to come into connection with God we can worship God himself. Yes. And so he's getting his counsel, but it's very clear he's not getting it from the first five books of the Bible, no. the Pentateuch. As a matter of fact, if you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4, mm-hmm. we can pick it up in verse 12 and read a few verses there. Okay. And God had some specific counsel for them about, about the dangers of what Jeroboam was about to do. Okay. And the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire, you heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude. In other words, you didn't see a form, mm-hmm. only you heard a voice. And he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments. And he wrote them upon two tables of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might do them in the land, whether you go over to possess. And here's the warning. Take ye therefore good heed to yourselves, for you saw no manner of similitude, or you didn't have a form in the New King James, you didn't see a form, on the day that the Lord spoke unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, what would be the result? In verse 16 it says, lest you corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, and then it continues to go on about the ill effects of this kind of idolatry. Mm -hmm. So God reminds them and says, look, you are, not, you are not to do this. You are not to confuse me with the material creation, as you alluded to in the Ten, in the ten Commandments. So when, when in, in 1 Kings 12, when it says the king took counsel, he got that counsel from the surrounding nations, from the traditions and the philosophies of the surrounding nations. That began to replace the authority of God's word at that point. So Jeroboam makes a very distinct departure from the Word of God, 
which also in turn leads to a departure from worship in the sanctuary. Absolutely. That's exactly the, that's exactly the, the, the logical flow. So he took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. As you alluded to earlier, three times a year, God's people would come to Jerusalem and they would come not just to the city, but because God's presence was manifested there in the temple. Yes. He would promise to meet his people at that location and reveal himself through the service of the, of the sanctuary there. Um, and so that directly led the rejection of God's word then led to a rejection of the sanctuary as the framework for understanding, and we're going to flesh this out a little bit now, for understanding the nature of God, um, uh, the nature of church leadership, and other issues as well. This was really the predominant sin. Uh, let, let me state it this way. Obviously, Jeroboam's sin had to do with worship. I mean, there was a worship center in Dan. There was a worship center in Bethel. Obviously, it had to do with who was qualified to lead. As later on, it said, you know, he ordained priests that were not of the tribe of Levi. Mm -hmm. Those were all, all, all things. Obviously, it had to do with, with, with the nature of God. But at the rock bottom foundation is the rejection of God's word, the rejection of his word. And with that, you cannot reject God's word and at the same time cling to the sanctuary because when he rejected God's word, the sanctuary was completely out. It lost, it lost its meaning. It lost its ability to provide uh, guidance and interpretation to all of these things. Now, 200 years later, if we can turn to 2 Kings chapter, ch 2 Kings chapter 17, the Assyrians are taking over. They're just, they're just annihilating all the nations. And they're coming, they're coming to Israel. And finally, the northern kingdom is completely just annexed away. They're completely dispersed within the Assyrian Empire. And the writer in the book of Kings here states the cause of it all. And we pick it up in 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 20. And the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel and afflicted them and delivered them into the hand of spoilers until he had cast them out of his sight. For he rent Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them sin a great sin. I think that's significant. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is going back to, this is 200 years later now, and it's saying, you know what the cause of the fall is? That which Jeroboam instituted at the very beginning when he wow. set up the two calves of gold that were really the result of him rejecting God's word. Yes. That was the major problem, and the Bible called that a great sin. Yes. Now, all sin is ultimately directed against God, but there are some sins that are much larger in their effects and in their magnitude than others. Okay. When we reject God's word and we reject the sanctuary, we reject the lenses, as we alluded to in a previous program, we reject the lenses through which we should understand God and view Him and everything else. And the problem then becomes systemic. It, when my wife went into nursing, I learned a new word. Yes. So I study systematic theology, and so when she was working in the cancer unit, if cancer was systemic, that meant it was inoperable. There was no place that the physician could go and simply excise a little part of the problem because it was all over the place. That's right. And this is the magnitude of the sanctuary message and, what, and the devastation that happened as a result of Jeroboam's sin. And if we go back to 1 Kings 12 and we just take a cursory glance 
every successive king followed in the steps of Jeroboam. And it had, it had this commentary for just about every single one of them. In 1 Kings 14, I think we still, have, we still have Jeroboam. And so we can look at 1 Kings 15 and uh, verse, verse 29 and 30. It says, It came to pass when he reigned that he smote all of the house of Jeroboam. He left not to Jeroboam any that breathed until he destroyed him according to the saying of the Lord, which he spake by his servant Ahijah the, the, the Shilonite, because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned, and he made Israel to sin. We could read verse 34. We could go to 1 Kings 16, where it talks about Omri and then Ahab. The commentary is exactly the same. Neither did he depart from the sin of Jeroboam, who caused Israel to sin. The next guy, same commentary, same commentary, same commentary, until we get to 2 Kings 17, and they're, they're all taken away. And you know, the, the, the sad commentary uh, on Israel is, is, as you've said, between Jeroboam and the end of the kingdom, there is that repeated phrase that you talk about following in the sins of Jeroboam and also that phrase, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. The sad thing about Israel, there is never a restoration. There's never a revival. Correct. Never. Now, Judah, on the other hand, we see in that kingdom... There is a kind of a roller coaster ride where there's departure, and we don't have time to go there today, but it's interesting. In every departure, mm -hmm. there is a restoration that takes place mm -hmm. a restoration of the temple, a restoration of Passover, which mm -hmm. is really a restoration of celebrating or worshiping at the temple, yeah. a restoration of the law of God, which is ultimately a restoration of the word. Correct. Any revival was was preceded by the restoring, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Uh, and I don't want to get us too off course, but it is interesting when you look at the end of time, God's people, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, what is their chief characteristics? They keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 14, 12, they keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Every revival, every restoration mm -hmm. in the history of God's people has been preceded by a return to the word, which is framed and founded on a return to the sanctuary. Correct. Yeah. The sin of Jeroboam ultimately demonstrates to us when we depart from the sanctuary, we depart from the word and there's really, it leads to only one thing, and that is complete departure from God and the abandonment of founding one's life on his principles. Yeah, Chris, if I can give a few examples from 1 Kings 12 as to how <clears throat> this new direction changed their conceptions about God. Um, I think it's important so that the viewers could understand that when the authority of God's word is gone and the sanctuary is gone, how we view God is reinterpreted. For instance, back to 1 Kings 12, verse 28, the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And then he said, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So now God is being associated with the material creation. So his being and his essence now are being intertwined with the things that he has made. So when God's uh, word is gone, 
when the sanctuary is gone, we lose this idea that God is a personal God that transcends the creation. Mm -hmm. As the Sabbath commandment even reminds us that yes. He has created these things, He transcends these things, His being and His essence should not be confused with these things. But the moment that foundation is gone, now you have God that is intertwined, the nature of God intertwined with the nature of the stuff that He's made. And the ultimate result of that is nature worship. But I bet if you were to ask the Israelites or Jeroboam, who was really leading out in this kind of worship renewal or worship revival, they would never admit that they're worshiping sure. nature. They're just altering, you know, they're just doing things in a new way, so to speak. But how we worship God, the forms that we use, uh, the rituals that we use are actually an interpretation of who He, who he is. And that was, that was the, that was, that's one major problem. So you have a whole complete reinterpretation of the nature of God, which is devastating, which then gets worked out into how they worship and how they choose leaders. For instance, in verse 31, 32, they, they chose later leaders that were not qualified by the Bible. And it's interesting, if you follow the account in the story of the kings, there was nothing but infighting and obtaining positions through deceit, through murder, through all these types of things, because when the standards of God's Word are, 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 are withdrawn, then who gains those positions? The wealthy, the powerful, the influential. And so you have all of this infighting going mm -hmm. on when these foundations are destroyed. So clearly what we see here, Carl, is that when the foundation is removed, when that lens is taken away, it blurs the very character of God, who He is, how we worship Him. Now, Pastor Carl, we've already learned that you actually grew up here in the Toronto area. That's right. How has this message helped you encounter Jesus in a special way? Did you grow up believing in Jesus? Did you grow up believing that the sanctuary was the framework and the foundation upon which you should live? I'd never heard of these things before, Chris. I, I was just, I grew up in uh, the Scarborough area and... Um, you know, we, we didn't really go to church a whole lot, just maybe weddings, funerals, things of that sort. So I wasn't really immersed uh, or had much knowledge about, about God's Word. And it was kind of through studying the, the prophetic Word that, that I really realized that the Bible began to be true. And particularly some of the passages that, we'd that we alluded to before in Daniel chapter 8 about the sanctuary being cleansed and the discovery of this sanctuary in heaven and how the sacrifice of Christ uh, was prophesied of in Daniel, I, I began to have new hope that there was something foundational, that there was something secure. For me, that meant a lot because I really didn't know. I couldn't really say that I was an atheist. I was, I was more like an agnostic. I just didn't really know. I wanted to believe, but I really had no, no anchor or no basis, or no reason to believe. And one of my favorite texts was, uh, was Isaiah 118, where God says, come now and let us reason together. I thought, wow, you mean God can actually talk to me in a way that I could understand? And that if I have questions and I'm just looking for evidence, He understands that? That just, that just really blew me away. And so as I saw the sanctuary linked with prophecy, I began to have evidence of the fact that the Bible is true, that Christ is doing a special work for me up there, and He's seeking to bring all of us into unity with Himself. So it began to really play a, a major part in forming who I was as a new Christian, and even in the work that I'm doing now. 
uh, in studying worship in the sanctuary as well. So you were a 20-something here in the Toronto area. You, you really were living a life that was founded on philosophy, really, effectively. Uh, philosophy had played a significant influence, but you are looking for something more. Absolutely. You, you encounter the Bible, you encounter, and you begin to see that as you're having these questions, and I can relate to this because I found myself in the same situation around the same age where, you know, I was never an atheist. I knew there had to be something, mm -hmm. but I just wasn't sure what it was. Mm -hmm. And my concept of God was just this distant, yeah. way out there being. Correct, yeah. You encounter these passages, Daniel 8, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, yeah. where you understand the reality of the sanctuary. It leads you into this developing of a relationship of that Isaiah 118 moments, come and let us reason together, where you see that the sanctuary teaches that God's interaction is on heaven and on earth. Mm -hmm and that he wanted to interact with you personally. Mm -hmm. It led you not only to accept that Jesus, in fact, died for your sins, and not only were you baptized, become a Christian, mm -hmm. you go into a life of ministry trying to help people find that, but it's led you to your PhD studies mm -hmm. where you've studied about worship mm -hmm. and the sanctuary. And in the last minute and a half we have together here, Pastor Carl, what can you say to help our viewer understand to know that the same God you encountered is the same God that wants to encounter them through the sanctuary? Chris, I just had a, a, an awesome experience as God began to unfold to me the beauty and the power of these passages. I began to see prophecy linked with the sanctuary and that was meaningful for me because prophecy helped me to understand that the Bible was true and I was looking for a foundation and perhaps many viewers today are looking for that and they've been inundated with scientism and evolutionism like I have in all these things and so I found a lot of intellectual comfort and hope but also I like to study philosophy but philosophy can be dry and I'm so glad that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and that the Word is made flesh and we can have a personal relationship with Him. And so combining the theoretical and the personal relationship with Christ has been just absolutely superb and I would just, I would just encourage people to come taste and see that the Lord is good. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for every person watching, every person listening today, that they would come and taste and see that you are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear friends, throughout the scripture, there is one thread, one crimson thread. That crimson thread is the blood of Christ and how he gave his life for yours. The sanctuary leads us to understand that crimson thread and how Jesus wants to personally interact with you. Today, I want to offer you the book, Where God and I Meet the Sanctuary. Here's the information you need to receive today's offer. To request today's offer, just log on to www.itiswrittencanada.ca. That's www.itiswrittencanada.ca. For Canadian viewers, the offer will be sent free and postage paid. For viewers outside of Canada, shipping charges will apply. If you prefer, you may call toll-free at 1-888-CALL-IIW. 
Call anytime. Lines are open 24 hours daily. Or if you wish, you may write to us at It Is Written, Box 2010, Oshawa, Ontario, L1H7V4. My dear friends, foundations are everything. And the foundation of the sanctuary is essential to your growth in Jesus and coming close to him. Pastor Carl, I want to thank you for showing and demonstrating to us the essential nature of the foundation of the sanctuary. It's been great, Chris. Dear friend, I hope that today you were moved to choose Jesus. I hope you'll join us again next week. Until then, remember, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God.